Hi everyone, my name is Maruf and I'm one of the medical students working on the Mac Emerge podcast team. Before we get started with this month's episode, I wanted to take a moment to shamelessly plug the survey that we created. It would mean a lot to us if you could click on the survey link to provide us with some feedback so that we could continue to grow and provide the content that you want to listen to most. Any and all feedback would be immensely appreciated. Thank you. Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to this month's episode. In the next hour, you'll hear from myself and a group of our residents who will be talking about the transition from med school to residency. After this, you'll hear from our very own Dr. Teresa Chan and her guest Dr. Aleem Pardan, who will be talking about the specifics of writing a reference letter for CARMS. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, it's Spencer, one of the PGY-3s in the McMaster Emergency Medicine Program. I'm coming to you again with another transition podcast talk. This time we're going to be talking about transitioning from being a med student to being a resident. I have with me some guests from our program, the new PGY-1s in our program, Um, and I think we're going to have a great discussion about their experiences as well as some of my experiences with transitioning into residency. So can I just get you to introduce yourself? Maybe we can start with Frank. Hi everyone, I'm Frank Battaglia. I'm an incoming first year emergency medicine resident at McMaster uh, who did his medical school in Ottawa. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Mohamed? I'm Mohamed Massey. I'm a PGY1 at uh, University of McMaster. Just finished my PEEP and graduated from King Saud University in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So I am an IMG. And Maggie? Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie. I am an international medical graduate as well. I went to medical school in Limerick, Ireland at the University of Limerick and starting my first year along with these two guys in emergency medicine. Thanks, Maggie. So I guess I'll just mention my background as well. I uh, did my undergrad and med school at McMaster and started the residency program here as well. So if we could start, if you could someone tell us about your experience transitioning to residency. Yeah. So um after a very busy uh, CARMS interview tour and wrapping up medical school in the midst of a pandemic, I uh, took the summer months to prepare myself for my first time in clinical practice as a, as, as a resident. And uh, it has been a whirlwind. I've been very fortunate that the staff and residents here at McMaster have been extremely welcoming, extremely supportive. But like, man, like, do you have like such a learning curve from like day one, you know, you're starting to see your first patients, getting back into the mindset of thinking clinically to work through problems. You're really trying to work through your newfound independence, but also beginning to practice again. So you don't want to overstep your boundaries too much. And kind of walking this line has been very interesting and exciting as I start started off residency. It's been a very good transition, but definitely one that is taking some adjusting and getting used to. Yeah, it's definitely a big change. How do uh, you two feel about it, Mohammed and Maggie? Yeah, I would say like feel very similar to Frank as I was reflecting on this before this podcast. First of all, I would say that also I'm still going through the transition and I think um, that will probably continue for a little bit longer. Overall, I think the experience has been positive kind of as I find my identity as a physician. I think, um, but at the same time, there's just been some very challenging moments where my ego has been totally deflated and my imposter syndrome has really kind of re- revealed herself. And I think I think a lot of that is just, there's just more expectations on us now that we're real doctors with responsibilities. And, you know, all the residency is supposed to be more of a graduated transition. It doesn't feel like that when you have a patient in front of you who is sick and who you need to care for. And so I think it's easy to feel the pressure, but 
echoing what Frank said too, the staff at McMaster are incredible. And I know even talking to some of my other friends at other institutions, they're not, there's not always that support there. So I think that that's been a huge factor in, in helping me go through this as smoothly as possible. I just always feel like they're easy to talk to and they're always there when you need them, which has been great. Yeah, I found that as well. The staff are very, very open to talking here. And I'm glad to hear that you feel that way as well, of coming from a different school, because for me, it was kind of easy to talk to them because I already knew them. But I'm glad that coming from somewhere else, you've, you've found that already. Uh, Mohammed, were you going to say something? Yeah, transition was a bit different and difficult for me because um, I did not just transition from med school. I was in a residency program and then I went to a new residency program. So the decision was tough because after doing four years of neurosurgical clinical training and a research here in neurosurgery, taking the decision to start it all over again was not easy. It's a life-altering decision, and I felt that it's it's going to come with a lot of hiccups and a lot of difficulties that might be a good thing, can be a bad thing. So I was heading to an unknown charted territory for me when I went to emergency medicine. I've searched a lot about many programs, and I did find MacMaster as one of the best programs or structured programs in Canada, and it was recommended by many of my colleagues, one of which is Ali, which is, he's a fourth year in our program. He was my medical school buddy, and um, he told me, you know what, maybe it's a good idea that you should consider this and think about it, and I did, and I've applied to many places, and I have picked MacMaster as my, my goal. Well, I'm glad that we have you here. That's a great uh, experience that you have that you can definitely add to our residency group. Frank, I'm just wondering, as someone who was a Canadian medical student, did you find that the transition was difficult? Yeah, so I, I was, I'm very fortunate on two fronts. One is my undergraduate medical training with my electives across Canada, as well as my training at Ottawa, prepared me very, very well to start off clinically in residency, as well as with knowing the area maybe not downtown Hamilton, but knowing the city somewhat has also given me some supports as well. So these two have really been kind of the, the basis of my of my transition into residency. And I'm very grateful for a strong clinical upbringing as well as knowing the city, because without them, I feel like it would have been extremely, extremely tough. Even with these supports, <laughs> the transition has been challenging, but in a good way, pushing me to become the next level of uh, clinician without necessarily making me feel uh, unsafe or unwell as I'm starting off residency. Asking that in a few more weeks to months as I move to some more uh, other services with more responsibility on the off service. But for now, I'm like comfortable and happy with the level of uh, uncertainty that I'm experiencing in the emergency department. That's great to hear. That's definitely one of the biggest challenges that I think residents in general, but also residents in our specialty face is, is that uncertainty. So Mohammed and, and Maggie, you, you mentioned some of your uh, experiences transitioning as IMGs. Is there anything that's like super different about practicing here versus med school or residency in the, in the places that you started in uh, that someone who would be an IMG might be interested in hearing or might be important for them to hear? Yeah, I think... Um... So in Ireland, and I think it is actually this way in most medical schools around the world, the clinical training is is different in Ireland. So unlike clerks here in Canada, in our clinical years in Ireland, we don't have responsibility for patients and we're only kind of really peripherally involved in patient care. So we follow teams around and rotate in different specialties, but uh, you don't have your own patients that you follow the same way that you would here as a clerk. And so as a result of that, I think our clinical confidence and some of our clinical knowledge is just lacking compared to the Canadian grads. But I've been told that we catch up eventually. So, but like I, I, I knew that going in even before starting medical school, I went in know, having that knowledge. And um, I think, you know, it, as long as you know that it's, that it's kind of where you stand, I think it's okay. And I think the other thing too, is that the program has been very supportive of me that way, you know, I'm not looked down on because of that. It's just, it's just my transition will be a little bit different than, than say Frank's or other people who went to the Canadian medical school system. Did you, did you have experience with procedures as well in med school or is that maybe another thing that 
you haven't done it. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's a really good point. But also procedures, we don't have a ton of experience with that, except drawing blood and putting in IVs. I can do that Which pretty well. Thing I can't but... do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah I mean either that's great <laughs> and in Ireland that is like the so the interns who are like basically the PGY ones um that's a big part of their job is they draw blood and put in IVs like all day long um so that's something that we're taught but but things like um like even suturing to be honest um I actually b- before my first shift I like I went to one of the uh I went to the urgent care center because it was where my first shift was and I asked if I could have a suturing kit and some and some uh, uh, sutures so that I could practice because it's something that I didn't get a ton of experience with, but I knew probably would be expected to know how to throw in a few stitches. So yeah, the procedural stuff, definitely there's, there's a bit of a catch up there. I guess that's one of the things that in the McMaster Medical School, and I'm not sure about Ottawa, but we had some in more informal teaching around those things, like with interest groups and that kind of thing. And then during clerkship, you would get some teaching, but it's definitely something that I guess we had maybe some more experience with. Mohammed, do you feel like similar thing for you or, or do you have a different experience? I mean, um, in Saudi Arabia, you can feel the distinctive level of teaching and uh, training, whether it's a a surgical specialty or a medical specialty, because of cultural differences or language barriers. um, Of course, you could see that very clearly since I've been to the States also. And it's very, very similar, like very small differences between the US and Canada when it comes to uh, clinical practice. I guess they're very close in the standards of training with some differences, of course, there's uh, outliers. But yeah, that was a challenge uh, being in a different country, being in two different other countries other than Canada. And it gave me this rich, I was enriched by the, the different levels of clinical training and experience. And um, I'm thankful that I had this opportunity here in uh, Canada, where I could also feel that my degree here can help me uh, practice whether I like to practice in the future in Canada or the US or Saudi Arabia, which is great for me. Is there anything in particular that you think made the transition to residency here easier like did the program or maybe your friends like Ali offer you anything to help make it easier no actually it's it was just the regular process of applying but it was super friendly uh, I've, I've noticed that it's nothing that I've experienced anything like before to be honest uh, very welcoming and because of I've actually interviewed in many other places in Canada the level of welcoming was different and the amount of um, feeling cared for was different. That's what made me choose McMaster is that you you immediately feel that you are getting into a family-like atmosphere where you can feel yourself and express yourself. And it helps a lot during your residency training because you can feel that there is always support. There's always people who's looking after you and will always be there for you. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think if I look back to when I was choosing my program, I I really felt that McMaster was like this perfectly sized program. You know, there's some bigger programs, there's some smaller programs, but I always felt that McMaster was like this perfect family-sized program. Frank or Maggie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was going to echo what Mo said. Uh, very much on like on interview day, I didn't do so. I didn't get to do an elective here, but on interview day, like you guys absolutely just like won me over, Spencer. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember, but I was kind of like looking to speak to some of the faculty members, and you kind of like saw me looking. You said, "You, who do you want to talk to? Who haven't you talking to?" And you like took me. You're like, All right, "You're next. You can talk to them." And I was like, "This is great. This is exactly what I needed." And I think that was a huge part of what made me pick McMaster was. I was just not anticipating such like kindness and such openness from not just like a select group of people, but from like everyone that I spoke to that night. So for anyone who's listening, who's looking to pick a residency program, uh, one thing I would encourage prospective applicants to look at would be evaluating a residency programs to see how the residents treat each other, but also treat applicants. It's, it's really eye-opening and really nice to see a program that's so collegial and so, so kind to one another, somewhere I want to train for the next five years, for sure. I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm glad that we have you and you can now like bring that forward. 
Maggie, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I think I'll just say, like, I completely agree. Um, when I did my elective at Mac, um, and also on Carms Day, but like going back to the elective, I just could feel that Mac Emerge uh, in particular was a really special type of community. I remember having a shift with this staff who just really made me feel like excited about about learning and about the possibility for the future and all the residents seem to have this kind of same in, infectious vibe and it just really seemed like a special place honestly I don't, I don't know if you get that in many other institutions so yeah i think mac is is the place to be so i mean it sounds like overwhelmingly at least mcmaster faculty residents kind of helped with with the transition to residency is there any resources that you used like kind of outside of those things like any readings or podcasts or anything that anyone found particularly helpful for me i did find podcasts helpful in fourth year i i used the busing system a lot to get from my lodging to the emerge uh, every day so i had a lot of time to listen to podcasts to study one thing that was helpful during that time was em clerkship it's a podcast about eight minutes really focused topics and if you listen to them on two times speed you can get five or six of them in during a bus ride to your Emerge rotation, which I thought was very helpful for just keeping me fresh and sharp. As well, I used the Ottawa Clerkship Emergency Medicine Primer. Uh, it was written by a couple of my friends who are in emergency medicine at Ottawa, who did a really good job of summarizing things. And that was kind of helpful for me during the transition from clerk to medical student focus in emergency medicine. Now I'm trying to figure it out to go from medical student to resident. Uh, academic half days are great. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Crackcast as well, and then going through Tintinales as a primer to really make sure I have some idea of emergency medicine has been pretty helpful. Maybe I'll tackle Rosen's in a slightly later iteration of my of my education. Yeah, I find I find uh, Crackcast really good as well, and honestly, like I use Up to Date a lot. I know that's one of those things that's got to be paid for, but it seems to be pretty reliable and people seem to be okay with you using it, but it's definitely expensive. Yeah. I like up to date too. And actually I'm still writing my, um, my med school subscription. So I'm just hoping it like doesn't conk out soon, but yeah, like Frank, I like podcasts too. I haven't, I actually haven't tried Crackcast, and I've been meaning to, so I'll put that on the list. Um, but I got enough membership to, um, CAPE or Canadian Association of Emergency uh, Physicians, just in case people don't know the, the acronym who are listening. And with that subscription as a resident, you get f- a free subscription to MRAP, the podcast. And they have this whole um, series called C3, which is like their core competencies curriculum. And I find it's a really good overview of topics. I tend to listen to those kind of around academic half day. And then I use Tintin Alleys as well. And I think that those together provide a good overview. I also use the Ottawa handbook that um, Frank kindly passed along to me. And it's really great, especially when you're on shift and you're like, oh, I kind of forget, like, am I missing something? I can quickly pull it up on my phone and take a quick peek at, you know, just what are the pertinent things to ask for this presentation. So Maggie, you reminded me from the EM rap, there's a, a course built upon it called uh, Ali, Ali EM bridge to emergency medicine. I did that over the summer. It's like eight weeks of just like really nicely laid out EMRAP C3 um, podcasts, other blogs or podcasts, and then some ECG patterns. It was a really nice way to kind of transition into being a resident as well. I forgot I did that. That was on the whole COVID whirlwind. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to check that out, I'd highly recommend that to incoming emergency medicine residents. That's awesome. I feel like MRAP is just this whole wealth of information. Like that's something I didn't even know about. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, me neither. They have so much stuff. Maybe I'll have to do that when I come back from critical care going back to Emerge. (laughs) So Mohamed, do you have any other resources that you were using in addition to those? I mean, I've used um, a couple of podcasts, uh, one of which is Life in the Fast Lane. It was very helpful for me when it comes to AKGs, very uh, self-explanatory. And I, I also have been listening to the same podcast that the guys were listening to, which is Academic Life and EM. Some of which I recommend for medical students is there is something called EM Basic Bootcamp Guide for Emergency Medicine. It's uh, an entry level kind of um, very helpful basics because sometimes it's easy for someone who has some experience that can miss out on some of the basic things in 
the emergency department. I liked also a podcast called uh, EM Nerd, uh, which is, I think has something uh, to do with uh, stories uh, of resuscitation and how to deal with certain circumstances um, of trauma and things like that. And it's done by the University of Maryland uh, Department of Emergency Medicine. Oh, that's that's great. I love having these discussions. I learn all these new things that I didn't know about. So these are some new things for me to check out. So we've talked about some things that kind of made the transition easier, some resources to use. Does anyone want to highlight on what made the transition difficult for them? I think if if I have to reflect, the biggest change for me would have been the the like dramatically significant increase in responsibility. And that's definitely something that's very hard to deal with. Anyone else have anything in particular? I think that's I think that's a huge part of it. So, you know, you have this huge responsibility you can now wield. You can do you can order things, you can give medications, you can really you can do procedures. Um you definitely have the ability to do all these things. What I find challenging is balancing that freedom to do it with my my interactions with my staff. So, and trying to balance working with different staff and how they know me. Because I might have worked with one staff three or four times who's now letting me do the intubation and run a bit of the run most of the recess, versus one staff who you know really wants me to review. Um, the person with the most likely ankle sprain and kind of this fluctuation from day to day, um, your responsibility and your freedoms for me is, is something that I'm trying to figure out myself. And that's something I'm finding quite challenging, balancing the fluctuations and responsibility and freedoms. Yeah, that's particularly hard and emergent. I think you'll find that even some sometimes in your later years, different people will be comfortable with you doing different things. You might be comfortable doing something one day and maybe not the next day. So that's definitely something to transition into. And I mean, it's something that kind of persists, but you get better at managing and you'll become more confident in deciding when you feel comfortable versus when you don't feel comfortable doing something. Any, any other things that have made the transition kind of difficult? Yeah, I think I think COVID's made it kind of hard, right? Like, good point. Good point. Um, you know, especially just for me as being like kind of more of an extrovert. Um, like I was, like when I matched, one of the first things that I was so excited about is I was like, I can't wait to meet everybody and like become like make all these new friends. And not that I haven't, but it's been it's been different because we can't like hang out in groups and like you know, I don't see know. the lower part of someone's face. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like I only know people people's eyes look like. <laughs> yeah. And actually that's that's a practically that's like practically been difficult like especially just recognizing nurses because I only know the top half of their face. Because I only see them at work and we're obviously all wearing masks and like I don't know if somebody's just like medium build and brown hair like it's really hard to differentiate them from the same from somebody who's also medium build and brown hair if I can't see their their mouth. So that's been difficult too. And it sucks when you get to a shift and you're like, oh, I know I've met this person before, but is it this one or is it the other one? I think that's made it a little challenging as well. Yeah. And it, like missing out on half days, I think is a really big thing that I guess neither, none of you have experienced yet really. Uh, but half days were like a great time for us to all meet each other, talk to each other and kind of vent or talk about the good experiences we had. So it's kind of unfortunate that all the half days are on Zoom for that reason. I mean, it's nice to be at home, but you really miss that time every week to get to see all these people and all your all your friends and all the staff. But one day, I think we'll get back to it. Yeah, I agree. One, one day. day. I'm just wondering, or Mohammed looks like you're going to say something. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo um, Maggie there because of COVID. I mean, crossing the border for me coming from the States was difficult. Uh, being in a new other country, being far away from family and loved ones, just to pursue your dream. I mean, it's definitely worth it. I mean, I was happy to even apply my surgical uh, knowledge into a lot of surgical procedures in the emergency room. And it it gave me the edge, yes. Uh, But there was a lot of also obstacles and uh, challenges. Changing your career, like going to a new career, made me think maybe 
we should have had something. I don't know if Mac uh, Master has that, but I think it's a good idea to have something like a career day where medical students can go meet residents, attendings, fellows, and just ask about their experiences. It can really direct you to the specialty you need because this is one of the biggest things I believe that medical students would be having a challenge in, which is choosing their infinite career. Like that's the thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So they don't have to go through what I had to go through. And honestly, it's not a bad thing what I had to go through. I mean, life is a journey and um, there's a lot of experiences and definitely it did give me uh, a good experience. And uh, I mean, you should always have this feeling of wanting to uh, adventure or like um, to, I mean, the thinking of the continuous process of learning that this is this is medicine you knew what you were gonna get yourself into there's a lot of learning process and learning curves there and and this is one of the things i'm very sure that it's rooming around in all of the medical students heads or who's just entry level to residency that is this right am i doing the right thing am i heading the right way am i going to be happy for the rest of my life so one of the things that made me leave neurosurgery is feeling so burned out. Um, and I asked myself a very important question, if this is really what I want to do for the rest of my professional career, because I still felt that I wanted to raise a family, socialize, and, and there is more to life than your passion to a certain kind of science, which in my case was neuroscience or neurosurgery. So you got to think about that. You got to think about yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a really good good point. It's medicine is weird. It's like this job where you kind of apply to med school without really knowing what it's like to be into medicine. Then you have to commit to a program with having some experience, but not having a lot of experience. And then that's kind of your specialty, right? So those those are some really good points. I think it's really helpful to think about these things before residency. But yeah, it's really hard to get like a good understanding of all the different specialties. So that's really good advice. Thank you. Frank and Maggie, do you find that your schools had a lot of opportunities for getting you exposed to different specialties? I think McMaster did have some, but I mean, a lot of it comes from doing electives, obviously. Uh, I would say yes. Ottawa has uh, done an exemplary job of really getting us involved um, and exposed to clinical specialties early. Um, we have options to do that as early as October of our first year. And uh, it's highly encouraged for us to do these kind of pieces to help build our understanding of the different roles within medicine. So you can start figuring out what you want to do early. That's been my experience so far. In Ireland, there's definitely more informal opportunities for that, not necessarily as organized by the school. And I think that goes back to just the way that the system is in Ireland, which is more, once you finish medical school, you start to work on your, your clinical knowledge and skills a little bit more. And, and people in Ireland usually don't specialize until they've been working as a doctor for at least two years, sometimes, sometimes maybe three or longer. So, but uh, the people were definitely open to it. You know, I think going back to kind of to what Muhammad said, if you think you're interested in a specialty, just find a friendly face of somebody who's working in that specialty, ask around and see if maybe you can shadow that person or do an observership or just take them up for a coffee or whatever. And, you know, hopefully it will lead to something where you can try and get a little bit of exposure, even if your medical school doesn't offer that. I think probably a lot of the Canadian schools do a great job of it though. Um, but internationally, it was something that I had to seek out a little bit more on my own. But I agree it's a good strategy because it's true, you know, once you commit to the residency, it's it's more difficult to switch. It's certainly possible, but I think, you know, it's it's a lot, it's it's your whole life. So it's important to be sure and kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think if, if you're a McMaster student listening, I mean, there's things like horizontal electives, there's a specialty kind of fair where the program directors come and talk about their specialties, but yeah, a lot of it, I agree with Maggie, is this kind of informal finding someone that uh, you want to learn from, learn about their specialty, if it's a resident or a faculty member, finding those people can be very helpful and that you can get a lot of real advice and real experience from those people as well. I'm just wondering, I mean, 
it's only been a couple of months and I would say that I'm still doing this as well after two years. But obviously residency is very stressful. We've kind of talked about that a little bit as well. But do you three have any strategies for trying to help overcome these stresses? Like, I know it's really hard with COVID, but is there anything that you found that's been helpful for you? Yeah, yeah. So I've gotten back into running, uh, which has been exciting. Uh, I've gotten onto Strava, which has been nice because I've been able to connect with some of our co-residents on Strava, like Maggie. Strava is definitely the new Facebook for any of anyone interested. As well, just hanging out with my family, trying to see my uh, new friends here in my Emerge group has been fantastic. Getting pizza at some great places in downtown Hamilton. And uh, I've just gotten into 30 Rock as well. So finding, make, making sure you find a good TV show to watch mindlessly post-shift is also a fairly good way I found to de-stress. Yeah, for sure. Mohammed, do you have anything that you've been doing to help overcome stress? I mean, you you maybe have a little bit more experience with this. I mean, uh, I always had a saying, and I do concur with uh, uh, Frank there. Well, always have time you know, to live. Give yourself little breaks. Go out and see the rest of the world. Mingle with people. Get to know uh, more new friends. Find the passion in continuing your process of learning. I mean, I, the saying that I used to always have is in residency, always find the time to eat when you can, drink when you can, sleep when you can, and study when you can. So you, you got to give yourself breaks. You got to, you know, give yourself a day at the spa. I, I used to do this like in my residency. I, I would take uh, my partner or like friend and just go and have uh, a day at the gym or, um, or just, hang out at the beach or just explore new places when you do that it, it becomes much much easier and and when you're in a shift or you're in um on call on some out service just know when you know and when you need to go to the bathroom just go and you know what just give yourself a break because accumulative stress is the reason why a lot of people break you know so yeah i mean this is just a general advice from someone who's been through a quite uh, amount of time in residency. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good advice. It's sometimes hard to make time to take a break, but it's always important. If you feel like you need a break, you probably do. And sometimes it's nice to even just go outside for a couple of minutes. Like if, especially if you're in a merge and you have your ambulance bay right out there, maybe go and just get some fresh air for a couple of minutes. Small things like that would be helpful. Maggie, do you have anything that you've been doing? I really like Mohammed's point about going to the spa. I actually went to the spa last week when I had a day off. I went and got a massage and oh my God, it was so nice. It was just like, I kind of just booked it ahead of time. I was like, I think I'll probably look forward to this. And like it came on a day when I really kind of needed it, like was feeling stressed and needed time, time by myself. And that was really great. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of plan that interspaced as I go along. And it's great that we get paro benefits that cover registered massage too. So it's like basically free to go to the spa, which is amazing. And like Frank, for me, maintaining like a healthy lifestyle and exercising is has always been my number one kind of go-to coping mechanism. And Strava has been really, fr- really fun. So Frank and I follow each other and we uh, give each other likes or kudos when someone completes a run. And it's like this cute way of encouraging each other which has been nice. I think it's important to spend time with people who who do things outside of medicine. So having friends who, who aren't doctors and who don't work in the medical field is helpful because they just have different perspectives and different life experiences that can kind of just add a little bit more to your life, I think, and may help you remember that this is not all that you do and there are other things in life that are important. And getting to know my co-residents has been really big as well. I've really enjoyed spending time with them and it's helped create this sense of community and has helped me feel less alone going through this. So I would encourage people starting residency to really just try and reach out, even if it's just a couple of people from your group, just getting together on a semi-regular basis and getting to know them because they're going to be some of your biggest supports as you go through, especially if you're in, if you're in a program like Emerge where it's five years. So it's good to get to know people. Yeah, it seems like this transition is a lot about going from somewhere where a lot of your time is focused on studying and focused on trying to build an application to a residency program and being good on your electives and kind of being worried about that. And then all of a sudden becoming 
an MD having all this responsibility. And then a lot of the stress seems to focus on still doing well in your specialty and kind of working towards your future, but finding out a way to balance that with the rest of your life and how you want to make the rest of your life uh, kind of work out. That's exactly it. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly that finding that balance after spending so much time just focused tunnel vision on studying and matching, making sure that you haven't forgotten about the parts of yourself and making sure that you build that up as a reserve to combat the stresses of residency is really, really important. Yeah, and it's hard. It's it's hard to go from always being stressed about getting into a merge, for example, and then you're in and there, it's this big relief, but now it's like really hard to <laughs> figure out the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, that's so true. And something that I've come to realize is that I think if you're not careful, you can spend your whole life wanting to get to the next phase or wanting to feeling like your life can't start until you complete something. So, you know, oh, I'll feel more, I'll feel fulfilled as soon as I get into med school. Oh, I'll feel more fulfilled as soon as I get into residency. Now I'll feel more fulfilled as soon as I finish residency. Um, You know, then I'll have more time. Then I can start doing this and that. Then I can start a family. Then I can you know, whatever it is, work towards my next goal. And I think that that's a really easy trap to fall into and something that I've definitely fallen into in the past, but I'm trying to challenge myself and try to, to live my life more, more in the moment and more present, which is a little cliche, but, but truly, because I think otherwise you get, you get stuck in future, future tripping yourself. And it's, it's not really a positive way to live. It's not really helpful you know, you're living today. And if you want to take time to go do something fun with your friends, or if you want to balance your life with, you know, another important goal, I think you need to figure out a way to fit it in. Otherwise, you'll never do it. And you'll always regret it. So that wraps up all the questions that I have for for the three of you. Frank, Mohammed, Maggie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This was a great discussion, and I think has been helpful for me being here listening. So I, I'm sure it will be helpful for people out there who are med students currently transitioning to residence or even people who are just starting residency and looking for some shared experience or advice on the transition. So thank you so much and good luck with the rest of your first year in our program. Thank you, Spence. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. All the best. Tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts! Hello, everyone. This is Tracy Chan, and I'm here with a different Aleem this time. Usually, I am co-hosted with Aleem Naji, but today, I bring you Dr. Aleem Pardon. Say hello, Aleem. Hey, how's it going? All right, so Aleem is our, um, one of our two program directors. Eric Hennel is the program director for the uh, CCFPEM program. And uh, Aleem Pardon is the program director currently for our McMaster World College program. He's here today to talk to me a little bit about the hard-earned lessons that he's had by going through thousands of letters of reference over the years. I mean, it must be thousands because I've done a couple hundred. I've been reading them basically since I was a resident doing file review. So exactly. that's like 11, 12 years of uh, reading reference letters. So yes. Yeah, a couple hundred at a time. Anyway, so definitely interesting, definitely something that we could all do better by. And I know there are like standard templates that people have. I know the Americans use the standard letter of reference and maybe someday we'll have something like that in Canada but until such time and even when you have something that's standardized there's always going to be free text because I think we're all going to need need to have both the numerical ratings and also some free text for people to contextualize exactly what you've seen what you've experienced with a specific training so why don't we dive into some uh, tips that you have for people who are uh, writing letters this season for their colleagues who are applying to the various programs. You have a bunch of them, right? So why don't we take them one at a time? What's your first pro tip there? 
So I think my, the bit for, so first of all, I'm going to preface all of this by saying that, of course, I'm speaking mostly for myself. And I think that there is, there's going to be some variability in terms of what different people are looking for, but I can tell you sort of my, my top do's and don'ts for, for reference letters. Uh, one of the things we do look at when we're looking at reference letters is tell us who you are. So uh, do you have a role? How long have you been in attending? Um, and also, what is your frame of reference? So how many and what types of learners do you work with? So for example, I often start off my letter with, you know, this is who I am, this is how long I've been in attending, uh, this is some of the roles that I've had, um, and this is how many learners that I work with on, a, on an annual basis. Um, I think it gives the reader of the letter a good sense of how, um, about what, what's your frame of reference, like who are you comparing it to? Um, and I think that is, that is helpful in terms of us trying to, to, to get gain value out of the letter. Yeah, I agree. I think that like, for instance, if someone is clearly from a community center, or maybe it's a high volume community center, I might read that differently. If you tell me that I supervise, you know, roughly 80 to 90 medical students per year because we're a tertiary care adjunct community center where there's a regional medical school, right? That's going to be a very different experience. For instance, some of our regional campuses like Waterloo or Kitchener, Niagara as well, um, then um, a non-teaching center uh, regional campus, which may not be the case really on Ontario. Most hospitals have some level of learners, but having a sense of whether or not you're one of their core teachers and, and has lots of experience to be able to rank order the candidate. And when you say this is the top candidate I've supervised all year, if you've only had three, three students, it, it changes the game versus if you've had exposure to like 40 or 50 of them, right? So... I do want to make sure, though, that people understand that just because you've not supervised a lot of learners does not um, necessarily devalue your letter, um, but it does help us in terms of giving us a frame of reference of, of what is your comparator. So, you know, so if you, you know, you are, you know, relatively new staff or you haven't had a lot of learners, that's okay. Um, it just, you know, make sure that you're being as descriptive as you can in your letter because then that will actually will help us. But it does help to have some frame of reference about who you're uh, comparing the, the student to. Yeah. Okay. Next tip. Uh, one of the other things I think it's important is to sort of talk about the things that, you know, we're looking for in a reference letter. So CARMS does provide a bit of a guide about what we're looking for. Some of the things that I like to look for is, and this is, can be done by anybody, is that is the learner teachable? Um, so, you know, I'm the program director for emergency medicine. Uh, I don't worry too much if they don't know a lot about emergency medicine. Frankly, that's our job. Like, we'll take care of teaching them the, the core content of the medical expert parts of emergency medicine. Uh, what I'm really looking for is, are they teachable? Are they open to feedback? Are they open to direction? If they get, um, if they do get feedback, do they then act on it on a, on a subsequent shift? To me, that's interesting because there is some evidence saying that people read that uh, paradoxically. So I know that there's been a big American uh, letter of reference study that shows that if someone mentioned that someone got better, um, somehow that's read as them not being perfect to begin with. Um, so it's really nice to hear you say that. I, I ag agree with that sentiment of the growth mindset being really important. As a program director of the Clinician Educator Diploma, obviously, I think I have to have to come at it with a growth mindset uh, because we have to set the standard for other teachers having a growth mindset. So I, I agree. Uh, I think that it'd just be important to couch that within the culture of whatever readers that you have. If, if you know nationally your specialty for some reason wants people to be fully formed and perfect when they are admitted, then you should contextualize that kind of frame of reference into the way that you frame your letter. Um, and I agree with you that teachability is super important. It's just maybe try to articulate that in a way that doesn't seem like they were at a severe disadvantage, but rather that you think that they're going to be amazing in five years, three years, one year after they've had the benefit of your program. Yeah, I think that that's what it is, is that, you know, will do they do they take feedback? Do they take direction? Are they are they people that can learn? And as you know, as Teresa, you know, the, the terminology that we always like, you know, do they have that growth mindset? Um, other things that are really important, certainly for us, is that, you know, do they have good communication and collaboration skills? And so for me, it's the uh, will they will they play well with others? And I don't just mean within the residency program. I also mean, will they work well with other staff in the emergency department? So your nurses, your RTs, your child life specialists, the, you know, the rest of your, your clerks. Uh, your pharmacists, the rest of your team, and also do they work well with consultants? Emerge is one of those specialties where we intersect with almost everybody. And it's really important that, you know, you are, uh, you're willing to be a team player and you're willing to work sort of with everyone. And so that I think is really important for me anyway, that, you know, do they work well within team? You're kind of walking through the canvas rules so far, so that's great. <laughs> Um, that's always a good way to kind of think about it. Like, you know, if you're ever look, looking for words, I think those are good. 
uh, terminology you can fall back on, right? So communicator, collaborator, uh, health advocate, leader, um, medical expert, scholar, right? These are the things that, I, I mean, in my template, I actually put those in bold and yep. highlight them and italicize them to make sure that people know that I'm like, with regards to this CanRes role, and then I'll put like communicator, I'll, and then I'll tell a little story. Um, so I think you're, you're spot on when it, when, you, when it is these kind of important concepts that we actually do um, have in our system to use them whatever, whatever way we can, right? Yeah, and I would tell you that actually, so, you know, and, and moving on, those are sort, certainly the things that we also look for is, you know, does this somebody who does have a history of advocacy in some way or a history of leadership in some way, you know, I, when I'm writing reference letters, will often ask the, the student or the candidate or when I'm writing letters from my residents to send me a CD so that I can touch on some of those other things. You know, they have a history of health advocacy. They have a history of leadership. Let me tell you why. Uh, and also to touch on the other comment that Teresa made, stories are very powerful, right? So if there is, you know, I still have a couple of letters that I remember writing where there was a great story around how a, uh, at the time, medical student, then resident and now attending, was able to, even as a student, jump in during a resuscitation and find a way to, to be a member of the team. And it was something that, you know, we never, never even occurred to the rest of us, but actually played a pretty critical role. And so we did, we wrote that, in, you know, I wrote that in the letter and I think was, was helpful for them. So, you know, yeah. I think that telling those stories about, you know, those, those interactions that actually, where they did show their stuff is, is actually quite helpful. Yeah, and that brings me to the next point is that one of the pro tips I have for those of you who are more junior or less seasoned with writing dozens of letters each season, is that if you get an inkling that this trainee is amping up to a lot of reference, I mean, this year is a little bit different because the elective season is different with the COVID situation. But in prior years, I'll keep a little notepad that's separate from the official records or even just email myself some notes about the trainee that I've seen now for three shifts. And I figured our electives coordinator was signaling to me that this person is here doing a visiting elective and might want a letter of reference. And so I'll take some notes so that I can compile them later. I'll also ask for collateral from uh, residents who they might have worked alongside with or reported to. So some of our senior residents take a fairly uh, heavy responsibility sometimes, and they, they actually do supervise the trainees quite a bit. So uh, I do ask them for their feedback and get them to email me a testimonial about the student as well. And that goes into the letter in direct quotes and stuff like that. And hundred percent. And that's very much what I do too. So I don't put them in direct quotes, but I do poll my colleagues who've worked with the person to get a sense of, you know, what their, what their impressions were. Uh, also, if there was a resident involved, I do that. Uh, I also watch their interactions with the resident and with consulting services to see that, uh, to see those interactions. Oftentimes it's because, you know, you know, when they're giving a consult, a lot of times we've spoken about how to give a consult and then, you know, watching them and providing feedback, but definitely those are things that we, we watch for. I think the, uh, the other thing um, that Teresa does that I also do is uh, I do also take notes. So if a, if a, if a student asks me for a reference letter, what I'll often do is I'll do the exact same thing. I don't use a notepad. I type them because I can't read my own handwriting, um, but I'll type myself a little email saying, you know, worked with this resident, you know, here are a couple of things to remember. And also remember there was this case that we worked that we had together. And these are some key takeaways from, uh, from that particular case, which, uh, which was quite, quite helpful. So the other, other thing that I do sometimes find helpful is that um, if you are going to provide a ranking for how a candidate compares to others, I think that's totally fine and sometimes is actually quite helpful for us. Though the one comment I would make, and these are for people who tend to write a, a lot of reference letters, is that uh, not everyone can be in the top 5%. And uh, that, that is often a challenge that we find where if we start reading multiple letters from the same person and every letter that we've written is in the top 5%, it does become a little bit harder to read sometimes. So. Yeah, and then the number ranking means a lot less if everyone has the same number, right? So figure out ballpark. I mean, it doesn't have to be exact science. You don't have to say it was like this person at the 43rd percentile or something like that. That might be a little bit too detail-oriented. Um, but generally speaking, you're probably only writing letters for the top 20%, probably the other 80% probably are applying to different specialties, not the one that uh, they're interested in. And so it is something where you might want to have some level of a frame of reference to compare. Um, I know that some of the standard letters in the U.S., they, they have that percentile where you have to rank order things. And, and, uh, and, and that's just the, the fact of the matter. And so trying to be able to frame a reference all the different students over time is something that I think we, we all get an internal sense of it, but it is something to bear in mind. It's, it's really important you provide a frame of reference. So this is, you know, top 5% versus 
all clerks that I've ever worked with, all elective clerks I've ever worked with, you know, all our emerge keen people. Um, mm-hmm. so that, that actually, that does help a bit in terms of who are you comparing them to? Yeah, we need to know the denominator. <laughs> this is person is in the top 1% of all people I've ever met. Okay, interesting. Uh, it still at least gives me a sense of what you're talking about. Like if they're top 1% of nothing, then I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, all right. And then I think, what's another tip that you have there, Ali? Uh, and so I have a, I have a few things that, that uh, are, are challenges with reference letters that I think it's important to talk about. Um, you know, th- and, this, and some of these are very intuitive, but I think it's important that we, we talk about it a little bit. And so uh, when, you're, when you're asked to write a reference letter, uh, please either uh, upload a letter. Um, it's actually very easy in CARMS. You, it's very easy to upload letters uh, or type it into the CARM system directly, which is also actually quite uh, Quite straightforward. Um, please don't handwrite your letter. Every year we get a couple of handwritten letters. Um, the challenges is, is they get scanned in, they're difficult to read. Um, it, it often it often paints sometimes the candidate into a bad light. So uh, wherever possible, please do uh, type or or upload the letter directly into the current system. It just makes it easier for the letter letter readers who are often reading a co- like a hundred or a couple hundred letters at a time. Uh, so you know, please do uh, do type it. Um, another thing that it sounds super intuitive, uh, please make sure that name and genders are consistent throughout the letter. Uh, it looks really, really awful when uh, you're talking about Teresa the whole way through your, your letter, and then at the end, you strongly recommend Aline to your program. Um, you know, so, you know, just make sure, you know, certainly when I do, I do use a template for my letters. So I do, uh, I do find and replace uh, the whole way through the letter just to make sure that I haven't accidentally, you know, left a name in there that I shouldn't. Um, but, uh, but I think that that's, that's really important. If you can avoid it, don't use local co- colloquialisms in your letter. And if you do, please explain it. Um, so if you're going to use an abbreviation that isn't typical, or you're going to use a, uh, you know, a colloquialism that's local to your site, uh, just make sure that it's explained somewhere. And uh, the last one, and again, this, sh- this should be relatively intuitive, don't use pejorative statements uh, about the candidate or other people uh, in your letter. You never know where your letter is going to go and who's going to read it. Yeah, for sure. No one wants to read even snippets of their letter of reference as a tweet somewhere uh, yes. someday, right? So uh, I would uh, say that uh, the candidates can eventually get copies of these somehow, some way. And so it's important to know that even if you have it shared with, it, with them a priori, that assume someone is going to float them a copy of this and write it with that in mind. They, they will potentially be your colleagues in the future. So I think it's worthwhile to keep that in mind. Uh, and I think that the that brings us to the point that if you don't feel comfortable writing the letter, you should probably just say so from the get-go, Yes. right? So don't say yes and then lambast someone or say something very, very negative about them in the letter of reference. That's that's not the name of the game, right? So yeah. I will say I'm relatively upfront with candidates. If I'm uh, if a candidate is applying and I think I can write them a strong letter, I say that. Um, if I can write them a, a neutral letter or a relatively negative letter, I tell them that too. Um, I think that, you know, if you're going to ask me for a reference letter, the least I can do is be honest with you in terms of what that letter is. It, not necessarily what it's going to say, but just in terms of, you know, th- this is going to be a strong letter. This is going to be like sort of a middle of the road letter or, you know, I'm, I may not be the right person to write this letter because, because of dot, dot, dot. And I think that's, that's part of our role as educators is to be upfront about that. Mm-hmm. And then I think, um, and the, the other thing to think about is that, um, there is some literature and research around uh, gendered language um, and language mm-hmm. that might have to do with um, other qualities of individuals around their ethnic background, their interpersonal rapport with people. There's different ways that people use language to convey certain biases. And so I think it's important to read your letter with a certain lens to make sure that you're not earmarking certain people as being lesser than, not by intent, but by, by accident. So one of the things that we've sometimes found is that, you know, when uh, some people are writing letters about men, they talk about, I'm going to use in air quotes, the, the harder skills. And when they're talking about uh, female uh, candidates, they're writing about softer skills and omit writing about other skills. Um, so I think it's important that when writing letters to make sure that you're talking about the same qualities and skills in a candidate, regardless of gender. So that, that would sort of be my, my take on it. I, the way that I do it is, is that I have a standard template letter that I use for all my letters to ensure that I am writing about the same things with every candidate. Yeah, there was a, uh, there was a paper that was published in AEM Education and Training by Dr. Simia Lee and colleagues. 
shout out to Simeo who might be listening because I'll send her the copy of this podcast. Uh, whereas in previous letters until the, before the slows, there was a lot more of that negative hedging and faint praise. Um, with the standardized letter referenced in the U.S., they, they did actually note that both male and female applicants had the same amount this time around. Um, and so it's in, and because we don't have a standard template, it'd be something for us in Canada to consider because uh, it, it might just set you up a little bit more to um, express your implicit bias by accident. So just have someone read over your letters again, if possible. A standard template for yourself is also another way to help out. The other thing to think about would be thinking about the words that you might use. Uh, we know from the business literature and also from this uh, study that sometimes there are certain attributes uh, such as agency, uh, assertiveness versus aggressiveness, independence, confidence. Um, and we might tend to use one word versus another for men and women. And these are stereotypes in our own brains that then manifest into letters of reference and then are read by their readers in different ways. So it's just something to be uh, mindful of. I, I don't think we can completely conquer this, but I do have, uh, let's say, an inspiration list of words that I keep. Uh, I have a similar one for learning objectives because I could never remember what verb I want to use. Similarly, there's an adjective list that I use in Apollo every season that have uh, gender neutral terms. So I don't use the word lovely, for instance, um, because lovely can be a gendered term, um, but I might use excellent. Uh, or, you know, instead of the word aggressive, I might use assertive, confident. Um, I, so there are certain words that I cue myself to do. And so before I write a letter of reference, I actually find having that list of words just in the open in the top left-hand corner of my screen helps me calibrate a little bit myself as well. So I think this is something that um, if we can all up our game in, in that way, it can be helpful on both ends. Yeah, for sure. I think those are all things that are that are important to think about. And like I said before, you know, the one of the ways that I've sort of tried to make sure that my letters are standardized is that I do have relatively standard templates that I use for letters mm -hmm. to make sure that I try to make sure that I'm consistent about what I'm talking about with all. Mm -hmm. and, and I was explaining to you that I actually have templates for different gender uh, uh, people as well so that, you know, I have a he, I have a she, and I have a they template depending on who it is so that I don't mess up the pronouns because that's the worst if you do. Um, and uh, I think that we have to be wary of that when we're um, trying to help someone along in their career. That was most of the big ones that I have. I think that, uh, you know, re reference letters can be helpful. And it's important, I think, that, you know, when you're writing a letter that you have a you have a, a good sense of, you know, the of the candidate and that you can, you can write about them truly and honestly. So. Yeah, and I think the other thing was, I think you may have pointed this out, like you asked for extra augmenting advice from the candidate, like you, you might ask them, is there anything you wanted me to highlight? If uh, if there's a CV that you could give, if there, there's some kind of um, proud project they want to be able to highlight that you could mention. Um, I think all of those kind of things to ask the candidate for their input whenever possible can be very helpful as well. And then I think that generally speaking, that's what these are for, is just to remind people that this is helping someone along in their career development to help them get to the next step. And so whether it's this kind of letter or it might be a letter for someone's promotion from assistant to associate, I think a lot of the same principles probably apply, right? So ask them what they're proud of, ask them how they can be helpful, ask, ask uh, around to see if you can add testimonials to your letter and probably it's the same formula. <laughs> So yeah, and, and so, you know, I do, like I said, I do ask for CVs. Um, one of the other things I do ask for, um, particularly because I do work with a lot of students and learners, because I uh, do ask them for a CV, I ask them for a, a picture just so that I can remember who they are, who it is I worked with. Um, and if they have evaluations, I do ask them to provide those as well. And I do pull the people that they've worked with to get a sense. Um, and then, uh, and then that's, how, those, that's the data that I use to write the letter. I find, I actually do find it very helpful. So. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of regular teacher can accounts with the other Aleems some other time. But uh, until then, we'll check you later. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl for, to up your game. If you have new ideas, we'd love to hear them. Or maybe you want to be on our show even better. Write us an email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.
All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you again next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!